Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur. Joining me in the studio is Veronica Irvin. She's doing her PhD in computer science. More specifically, though, on the art of lace, I think. <laughs> Thank you for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. Your uh, your project is fascinating because, uh, to me, just using math and lace and computer science, all tying it together in this sort of really visual and, I would say, accessible for people who are not necessarily... Um, is savvy about math or computer science. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you're sort of marrying all these ideas together and what what your research is all about? Sure. So um, I guess growing up, I was always kind of a maker. I had to make things, particularly fiber art kind of things. I just had to see wool. I'd have to make something out of it. And I learned how to knit and crochet and stuff like that. Um, but my grandmother had made this lace called tatting. Um, and my mother didn't know how to do it, and my grandmother had passed away, and I really wanted to know what it was. So at around the age of 12, I went and got a book out from the library, and I taught myself how to tat, and I didn't quite get it right, so my mom found a friend who knew how to tat, and she taught me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really hooked on this whole idea of making things and making lace. And then when I was in my early 20s, I took a course on how to make bobbin lace, which is a particular kind of lace made by braiding threads together. So it's just like you braid your hair, same kind of Mm. um, braid, except instead of using three braids like you do in your hair, you use hundreds of threads. And so you braid them. It, it actually sounds very complicated, but you braid four threads at a time, basically. And, right. um, but you can make these amazing designs out of it. Um, but when I was learning how to make it, I um, thought to myself, this is really mathematical. Both the making of it, even though you're following a pattern, um, there are all these little puzzles that you have to solve. So you have these threads, and you have to have these. They're over here, and you want to use them you know, somewhere left and down below to make something else and you have to figure out how do you get these threads from here to there Mm -hmm. and for me it's kind of like the same kind of logical puzzles you have to solve when you're doing origami so you know you have the pattern for origami but sometimes you look at the before picture and the after picture and it's like okay (laughs) my paper doesn't look like that I can't do that without cutting it or something right Mm. um so you think and think and you have to like try all these different possibilities and eventually you get to this point where yeah you fold the paper and it comes out the way it's supposed to. Well, it's like that with making this lace. It's like, well, um, maybe not, sometimes it's obvious, but many times there's, it's not really obvious and you have to try all sorts of things and there are these little puzzles that you have to work out. So mm-hmm. that's in the making of it. And then when you get to the actual designing of lace, it's like, wow, it's, it's really mathematical. All these geometry puzzles that you have to solve um, before you can actually make workable lace. Mm-hmm. So that was when I was in my 20s and I had this idea in my head that, oh, this is really mathematical. But I didn't go any further than that other than just thinking, oh, it feels like that. Right. Um, and then I uh, was a computer programmer in industry where I worked for 17 years. Um, and then I decided to go back to school and I was taking uh, courses for my PhD degree. Mm-hmm. And one of the courses, uh, you have to do a project. And so I thought to myself, um, it was about trying different combinations of things. And I thought to myself, well, I had this theory that bobbin lace is very mathematical. I should put it to the test and see if I can prove it. 
Um, so mm. that was sort of where it started. And so what I came up with is with this idea of making a mathematical model of how bobbin lace is designed. Hmm. And this isn't something I can totally take credit for because I'm following the footsteps of some other people. So uh, it turns out that origami has been around for like a thousand years more. Um, but it was very simple. It was like folding cranes and boats and very simple things. Mm -hmm. But in the last, say, about 50 years, it's been revolutionized. First, it was revolutionized by this Japanese artist who took it from sort of this craft with very simple things into an art form. His name was Akira Yoshizawa. Mm -hmm. And he also came up with this design, the, the drawings that we use that um, we convey how the patterns for folding are done. Those sort of two-dimensional squares and triangles. Yeah, yeah, with the dashed lines and the, mm. the to tell you a mountain fold and a valley fold. So that was his contribution as well as he was a great artist. Um, but then there were two other people. One was a, he's a, a physicist and an engineer. His name's Robert Lang. Mm -hmm. And he decided to make a mathematical model of this folding pattern. So basically he would take some object, like say you wanted to do a caterpillar with all these legs. Mm. And he, his mathematical model would take that sort of object as input and it would create all the lines that you needed to fold along on the paper as its output. Hmm. And he was able to use this to make all these amazing um, art pieces. And you can see all these fantastic things people are making now, like dragons with all their scales hmm. and, and snakes and everything. Um, but not only was it useful in the art form, but he also took it... Um, to sort of applications outside of art. So for example, it's been used to take a giant mirror and fold it up small enough so that it can fit on a space shuttle to go out into space to be used in telescopes. Wow. Like the Hubble telescope kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah, so they fold it out into the real size. And it's also been used in things like for medical uses, um, like a stent, which is a thing they use in the heart to, or the blood vessels to expand them mm -hmm. so this stent can be folded up really tiny so that it can just flow through the blood vessels to the place where the blockage is and then expand in, into the right size so, so he made basically a mathematical equation for folding essentially yeah a yeah. mathematical model that represents mm. how, to, how you fold some object mm. um, and then there's another fellow uh, his name's Eric Demain and he's a computer scientist and he studies sort of what are the limits you can do with folding. Hmm. He started with origami, but he folds all sorts of other things too. So basically um, questions about, is it possible to fold a, a map using these kind of folds or something like that? So just basic, um, more sort of mathematical approach to it, not necessarily having an application, but sort of finding all these unsolved problems inside this art form of origami. Hmm. So I'm kind of looking at what they've done and seeing, okay, so if we make a mathematical model, we can expand what we could do with the art form. And also we might discover some things in the field that we'd never heard of before. Mm -hmm. And uh, so taking that as my inspiration and trying to apply that to my own art form, lace. Has anyone done this with lace before? Not that I know of. So I've hmm. been doing background work. Um, a number of lace makers have looked at trying to make new lace patterns. So they've looked at traditional ones and tried to make variations on them. So mm -hmm. they've been very systematic about that and trying to come up with new ideas, but no one's actually turned it into a mathematical model right. and tried to use a computer to generate new patterns. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting to me that they're that they're trying to come up with new patterns. So there that says to me that there's like a set amount of lace patterns and are there not new is it difficult to come up with a new pattern? 
Right, so um, there are different ways to think about a pattern. Mm -hmm. So if I thought about a pattern as this particular doily or this particular um, collar or something made out of lace, that's one thing. But within that, what happens is um, laces made with thread usually all the same color. So if you think about an artist painting a painting, if they only had one color, that would be very limiting, right? So instead mm -hmm. of using color to give you texture and um, contours and things like that and to differentiate between different spaces in the painting, mm -hmm. they, use, um, they use texture. So each uh, area in the painting is filled in with sort of a different pattern, a different kind of texture. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the number of paintings you can make is unlimited, but the number of colors or textures that are available are not unlimited. Right, right now, all we know is a certain number of them. In fact, what um, there's sort of these uh, catalogs or lists of things that people have discovered and use frequently. And there's probably about um, three or 400, maybe at the top a thousand different ones of these little patterns that can wow. be used to fill in an area. Hmm. But with my computer program, I'm able to generate hundreds of thousands of patterns. So kind of exploding what wow. this palette of textures that we have available. Hmm. That's incredible that you can have so many more patterns. Yeah. Huh. Now, now, in fairness, a lot of the patterns that I've generated aren't aesthetically pleasing. Right. So the ones that, that this catalog that they've come up with, they're all very beautifully symmetrical and mm -hmm. um, they're, they're very pretty. Um, ones I've generated, some of them are very chaotic looking and uh, right. almost look random, um, which maybe from the, well, depends, you know, from a modern point of view, maybe you do want something that looks more organic and, or random mm -hmm. and not so perfectly symmetrical. Mm -hmm. But also from the applied point of view, um, some of these textures might be very interesting in an application. So say, for example, you wanted to design um, a network so you wanted to send signals and receive signals going back and forth. And so the network has a certain shape mm -hmm. and you want it to be um, securely held in place. So you come up with some kind of design that embeds this network and it securely holds it in place. Mm -hmm. And you can make that out of some kind of conducting fiber. Doesn't really matter what, as long as it conducts. Mm -hmm. um, and then you could embed this inside some kind of tissue. Mm -hmm. So for example, muscle. And then now what you've got is a... a muscle with an integrated neural network. Now that neural network doesn't have to be aesthetically pretty. It just has to have the certain properties that it connects the right points. Um, and another part of it is that it has many holes so that the muscle tissues can grow in and around it and, and embed inside it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. so your lace patterns then could be used for, for something like that potentially. Right. right. That's huh. sort of my um, long-term goal is that we can have enough control over how the lace is designed that we could specify something like a network mm -hmm. and then generate the lace pattern for that and then create that out of some kind of fiber that's useful wow. in whatever the application is. Did you, when you first started out doing this, uh, did you have ideas of that kind of application or were you just trying to figure out if math was, or if lace was as mathematical as you sort of intuited to, it to be? Right, so to start with it was more just, okay, I think it's mathematical, let's see if I can prove that. So yeah, none of right. these ideas really came at the beginning, but then sort of um, looking at what had been done in origami and trying to think, well, mm -hmm. is there a similar kind of useful application for what I'm doing? Hmm. Those kind of ideas came to mind. It must be um, 
kind of gratifying that you get to that point where you can see not only it is, you know, mathematical, there are all these potential patterns, but, oh, there's also these, like, opportunities to use it in other ways, not just the art form, which yeah. is, you know, important as well, I think, but um, but something that could potentially, you know, help with, you know, I don't know, biological stuff like muscles and tissue like that, yeah. Right, yeah, and again, so that math is always full of these kind of things, like, you kind of think, well, this making lace, that's very ornamental, very unapplied, very um, not useful, one could say, right? Mm -hmm. um, but similar things like uh, the whole field of probability theory and statistics all came from this question about, can I win a card game? And I think, well, playing cards, that's just as, you know, <laughs> un unuseful <laughs> as making lace. Possibly so. more so, I would say. Anyway. <laughs> but basically yeah. the idea is that um, there are all sorts of these very interesting problems mm -hmm. that you never know where the solution could be applied in other cases. Mm -hmm. yeah. Were you always interested in math, uh, you know, when you were growing up and then when you were getting into lace? Did you have a mathematical mind, do you think? I I. I've always loved math. Right. I wouldn't say I'm the greatest at math, but I've really always loved it. For me, it always has seemed sort of like magic in mm. that um, you can beat your head against a wall trying to solve a problem by just trying all the possibilities and going through them one by one. But if you have math, you can formulate that problem in a certain way that, you know, just taking all the stuff that we've learned about math over the centuries, all of a sudden that problem is trivial and very easy to solve. So for me, that's kind of like magic that, you know, why waste all this time trying to consider all the possibilities when you can express it in a mathematical way and mm. solve it very easily. Mm. Mm -hmm. But um, my background sort of, I've kind of skirted around math all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I really loved it, but uh, I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry so there's some math in there, but it wasn't really, I, I didn't do undergrad in, in math, mm -hmm. but I sort of gravitated towards the math in chemistry. So you did your undergrad in chemistry, and then did you go on to be a computer programmer immediately, or how did that work? No, not immediately. So in chemistry, I was really interested in the math, so I went into the areas of physical chemistry and also quantum chemistry, where mm -hmm. it was more about math than about um, the wet lab kind of working with organic materials and right. making a mess, <laughs> which I really like the colors and the crystals mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but I wasn't that great at memorizing things. So right. I was much more attracted to the math side. Um, and then I went on to do a master's degree in applied math, which was actually in the area of quantum chemistry about mm -hmm. um, using this chemistry and math combined mm -hmm. uh, to look at electrons. Oh, but then after my master's, I went into industry and worked as a computer programmer. Right. Um, and for 17 years, you for said? For 17 years. Wow. Were you able, so I guess you were able to use math in that job. Was it, you know, in a way that was fulfilling for you? Or what did you like and not like about um, computer um, programming? I, I really enjoyed computer programming. So I had not really done a whole lot of computer programming before I went into industry. Mm -hmm. um, but computer programming is very logical. There are many kind of mathematical elements to it. It's a lot about problem solving. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to work on some really great projects where I kept learning. That's another thing that I really like is to be challenged to learn something new. Mm -hmm. um, but straight out pure math, pure um, theory, 
that's very limited in industry. Mm-hmm. So you get these problems, but quite often they're very similar to ones that you've solved before. You just have to um, apply the knowledge you had before and solve them again. Um, it's very rare that you have to solve a problem in such a general way that you could really think about it as being math or computer theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while I really enjoyed the programming and learned lots and really that was probably necessary for me to get to the level where I wanted to do this, um, I was kind of wanting to get back to more research, more pure math kind of things. Mm-hmm. What kind of things were you programming? Um, I like open source projects, so I spent about 10 years working on a project called Eclipse, Hmm. which is an open source um, programming environment. So people who write code use this environment to develop their code inside of it. Um, And open source is wonderful because you get to talk directly to the people who use the product, and we use the product ourselves, so Hmm. everything we didn't like we could change and make it different. Hmm. So that was a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, and then and now you've come back and you're looking at lace. And so I want to ask you specifically about the way in which you are producing these patterns and actually producing the lace. So you are, maybe you can sort of explain step by step how that works. I imagine that you have a mathematical model and a computer and then a device that <laughs> that makes the the lace is it something like that sort of like that the device that makes the lace is me oh, right okay <laughs> so I, I make the uh, patterns but then I actually by hand make the lace right in the end. okay um so the way it works is um I have a model that represents how lace is designed so there are a couple of rules that you have to follow in order for a pattern to be workable in lace um one of the rules is that the threads all start at the top of the pattern and then follow all the way to the bottom. So you don't cut threads off in the middle and start over again. They have mm-hmm. to be able to go from top to bottom. So there has to be this sort of a continuous path. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the rules that if you make this design with a line representing each thread, the line has to start at the top and end at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And you can represent that using um, different forms of math. I use uh, graph theory. Hmm. which is a way, it's a, it's a form of discrete math, and it's it's kind of a way, it, it, it's not like equations with numbers and Xs and stuff like that. It's more about um, representing the data associated with um, something like a network. It's very much like the same kind of math used to design networks. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so the way I generate this pattern is that I um, use the computer, to produce one of these graphs. So picture a picture like a network, like your Facebook network or something like that. So the computer generates one of those using um, some rules, but basically also using, um, it's not random, it goes through it systematically. So it says, okay, for example, let's take a Facebook network. To start with, maybe it says that you have one friend. Okay, what does that network look like? And then it says, okay, you have two friends, and each of your friends has one friend. Each of your friends has one friend or two friends. So it goes through all these different combinations and draws what that network might look like. Hmm. Um, And then once it's created one of these networks using its set of rules, it then um, evaluates whether that network is actually workable as lace. So does each line follow from the top to the bottom and some other rules that are involved with making lace? Hmm. 
Are the patterns that you're generating through your research, are they, you, you mentioned that some of them are really random, they're quite different than what a traditional, traditionally beautiful lace pattern would be. Are they in any, do they differ in any other ways? Are they particularly more difficult to make or easier to make at all? Yeah, no, that's a very good observation. A lot of them are, are more difficult to make. Hmm. Um, a lot of the lace patterns that are commonly used are very um, similar. So they, um, you only have to learn a couple things in order to make them. Whereas the patterns that I've been generating, quite a few of them go off in very strange directions. So um, let's say the pattern was made with 10 different threads. In a traditional one, probably uh, there'd only be four of the threads would do exactly the same thing and six of threads would do a similar thing, right? right? So you'd only have to really remember two different things. Mm. In my patterns, all 10 different threads would be basically doing different things. So you'd have to remember 10 different actions to do. Yeah. That might be a little bit maddening. Is it hard once you get into it, remembering which string is which or which thread is which? It is. Uh, it, it's much more challenging yes. in, in that way, yeah. And I like that mm. because it means, you know, it's not like just sitting down and repeating the same thing over again. Mm -hmm. You have to really think about what you're doing. Probably for people who are, you know, really into lace as well and making lace, that might be an interesting, like a refreshing mm -hmm. thing to do, you know, something that's completely different. Have you shared your patterns with the lace community? Yeah, so there are, um, there's a, an international lace group mm -hmm. and they have a, a news group where you can post things and share things. So I have posted some of my research there and gotten mm -hmm. a feedback from them and I have um, put up some of the patterns that I've created mm -hmm. and a lace maker in Belgium has made a sample piece and a lace mm. maker in, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Czechoslovakia. Has, wow. has made something. Yeah. So that people I've never met before are taking these patterns that have been generated by my program and, and making designs with them, which is pretty neat. I feel like you're a lace superstar or that you're going to become a lace superstar. I mean, I don't know, in most art forms, it seems like this kind of uh, research or people who are doing research into these art forms are often not that accessible or it's there's a big separation between what's actually happening in real life and what's happening sort of in the academy and research. Yeah. Um, is it important for you to have that connection to a community of people who are constantly doing this kind of work? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it is to me doesn't make any sense if I generate all these patterns if they sit in a in, in a journal somewhere on a shelf and nobody looks at them that was kind of pointless mm -hmm. for me the the real success would be if I can influence the way lace is being made um, and see designs that are using my ideas going mm -hmm. forward yeah now you brought in two samples of lace one that you found at a vintage store and one that you've made yourself um Let's, we can look at them and describe them a little bit. I think they're beautiful. The first one you found at the vintage store is incredibly intricate, and it's in sort of the shape of like a little necktie almost. Is, is that what it's meant to be, is worn as a garment that looks like a tie? Yeah, so I believe this is supposed to be worn by a man, mm -hmm. and it's the equivalent of a tie. I think it's called a jabot. Mm -hmm. um, and the style is called Maltese Bobbin Lace, so it's made with a cream-colored silk, and there's a little Maltese cross in the center of it. And it's made with a pattern that uses, um, in lace-making terms, they're called tallies, but they look like leaves, and they're arranged in sort of flowers of six leaves. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes a lovely um, pattern that sort of covers the whole main part of this jabot. 
and then it's surrounded by a nice little serpentine kind of wiggly um, decoration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, and when do you think this would have been made and worn? Ooh, that's a really good question. So um, I'm not that great at dating pieces, but so lace making, bobbin lace is about 400 years old. Hmm. This is probably from the, I would say the late 1700s, early 1800s, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge industry in the 1700s and 1800s. In fact, it was worth its weight in gold. And there were um, trade embargoes between countries because they didn't want to um, buy too much lace from other countries because it was such a huge investment. Wow. Um, And lace was smuggled all over the place between England and Europe and Italy and France. Um, But in around uh, the way lace was made, it was all made by hand Mm -hmm. up until the 1700s, late 1700s. And it was made by very poor people. So it's a huge industry with a lot of money, but there were mostly poor women, some some boys as well, and it was kind of like a sweatshop, really. Right. They would work hours and hours making this lace by hand. Um, and they actually worked, sort of, this is kind of sad, but they worked in often in dark, damp basements because the idea was to make this lace as fine as possible. So they would make this thread that was so thin, um, they found samples of thread that was 20 microns thick. And that's, um, your hair typically is about 60 microns. So we're talking like less than half the width of your hair. That's how thin the thread was. And because it was so thin, it was usually made from linen, it was very breakable. Mm -hmm. And so in order to not break, because you have to pull on these threads and work with it, you had to keep it in a damp, dark environment because the sun would break down the thread and uh, dryness would cause the thread to break. So these women were actually working in damp, dark basements by candlelight, um, making all this stuff by hand. That's not really the greatest environment for your eyesight if you're trying to look at something thinner than a human hair. Oh, unreal. Yeah. So um, that sort of happened. And then it was really a huge industry. So um, around the same time when they started developing these looms that could weave, the jacquard looms that could weave any kind of design um, that were um, not operated by humans, they were operated by these punch cards. Hmm. They also used that same technology to make lace. So you started getting machines that could make lace. Hmm. Um, And so that sort of revolutionized the lace making industry so that a lot of it was being done by machine. And then at World War One, women started working in factories in roles other than making lace. They were mm. you know, contributing to the war effort. And that sort of changed the role of women in, in the workforce. And they never went back to making lace. So after World War One, that was sort of like the end of lace making. Mm. So trying to going back to dating this piece, if it was made in industry, it was probably made in the 1800s at the at the latest. It could have been made by um, a hobbyist. Right. In which case, I, you know, they could have picked whatever style from whatever era. Mm-hmm. It looks old, though. It does look old. It's, mm-hmm. The silk has started to um, color a little bit. I'm, I've, I picked this up at the consignment store, and I'm debating whether I should clean it or not, because I'm afraid that cleaning it's going to ruin it. So maybe I'll just keep it with its... Let's look at the other piece that you brought that you've made. Now, I have to admit, when you first showed it to me, 
I've been talking to a lot of grad students and people who work in labs on campus who have access to things like 3D printers, and so they make something, and then the 3D printer spits it out, basically. Right. So when you showed me this and told me that it was based on um, uh, sort of a computer-generated pattern, I... I immediately envisioned some sort of lace robot, like zzz, yeah. printing it out. But I'm so much more impressed now that I know that you did this by hand. It's unreal. Um, so it's a white square, and it starts with what you described as little snowflake patterns. And then it sort of changes halfway through, and, and a sort of, I would say, a less delicate sort of pattern sort of takes over. Not really less delicate, but it looks like... I'm not sure. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you can describe it a bit for me. Sure. So... Um the top, they kind of look like little snowflakes or stars, um, and that's a very traditional pattern. And there you can probably see the uh, the symmetry that's very common in traditional patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea I had in producing this design was that I wanted to show sort of a transition from one texture to another texture. Um, and so I used a random number generator to sort of pick where the textures would fall. And then so mostly at, at the top, it's one texture and at the bottom, it's another texture and it just sort of transitions from one to the other. So the top is this sort of very traditional star shape. And the bottom is a pattern that is much more modern looking. It's it's very just straight geometric. It's just sort of slanted lines. Um, it's uh, not as... Um, detailed looking, I guess it's very simple. And so I call this piece Remembering Winter and the top sort of starts out with these beautiful snowflakes falling gently on the sky from the sky. And then over time, it turns into this blizzard, which is sort of on a slanted as if the winds um, pelting you with this snow. We, we touched on a little bit about how there are other applications for this place with networking mm-hmm. and um, those more random patterns that might not be aesthetically pleasing. Will you um, make it available, this information, to people who might be working in the biomedical field or things like that? Or have people yeah. approached you and talked to you about that yet? I haven't made those connections yet, but this is something I'm very interested in. So, for example, I just heard on the radio a little while ago that there's a group at UBC and they're working on artificial muscles. Hmm. And the way they're making these muscles is they're using, a, it's basically fishing line that's coated in silver. Mm-hmm. So it conducts um, electricity and it, um, I think they're actually using that to conduct heat. So what happens is the fishing line, when it's heated up, it contracts. And so they've basically knitted some kind of muscle out of it and then they heat it up and it contracts and they can lift things Um, Mm. so that's really interesting and it's stronger than a human muscle but they're just using knitting and I was thinking well that would be really interesting if we could look at different ways of making this text this textile that Mm -hmm. they're using maybe using some kind of lace um, I think we're all, yeah we're all out of time here. I want to thank you so much for coming in uh, to be my guest today, um, and I'm looking forward to whatever happens next with uh, with your lace project. I'll link to your website I think as well on the podcast so people can check it out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, visit our website cfuv.uvic.ca. The music you heard today is from Solar Mass Collective Volume 2, the song BOC by Kimchi Kitty. Mm-hmm.